Third John, it is the shortest book in the entire Bible. It only has 219 words. So we're going to read every single one of them because I've got to make up for lost time. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, I have referenced that particular verse a number of times in my preaching, but I've never preached directly from the book. There's my excuse again. I'm sorry to interrupt. Verse number five. Beloved, thou dost faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church... But Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. But he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Father, I thank you for this brief but beautiful book. And Lord, I pray that you would use the power of your word to be a help unto your church tonight. And, and Lord, in doing so, I, I pray that you would empty me of myself. And Lord, that you would fill me with the unction and, and the power of your spirit. And Lord, that you would find yourself tonight a man in me yielded to you. And I pray also that you would find a church yielded to you also. Help us now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This evening, I want to take this, this book. I want to draw a few uh, characteristics about it to your attention and then I would like to, to preach tonight a, a message entitled Cameos of Character. You see, a cameo, it's a, it's a brief appearance. Sometimes uh, when a, a movie or a TV show and some famous um, person, maybe an athlete or, or maybe another actor, would just kind of pass through the background or make just a brief guest appearance, uh, you know, say maybe a couple lines and get paid a couple billion dollars. Uh, that would be an example of one cameo. 
A cameo is intended to be brief. It's, it's not a, a long dialogue or diatribe, but instead it's, it's just a moment, just an appearance. And, and in this book, I, I notice that, that there are four different men that, that make an appearance, however brief. And in 14 verses, these four men we can learn a great deal from. One is the apostle John, the author, and, and he refers to himself on a few occasions, both at the beginning and the, and the end of this book. The, the next character that you see is the recipient, the one that was written to. His name is Gaius. I'll say a couple words about him in, in just a moment. And then comes the villain of this story. Uh, this villain is found in verse number nine, this man by the name of Diotrephes. And, and, and then there is a, another hero which steps forth, and his name is Demetrius. He shows up in verse number 12. And, and then the, uh, the dialogue goes back to John as he speaks from the first person and, and says a few things about himself. You see, there are, are four men, but from these four men, there are are five different character traits that seem to boil to the surface and, and are, are punctuated throughout this short letter. You know, it is possible for one man to play two characters. We see this all the time, and forgive me for making a film reference twice in one message, uh, but it's not uncommon for an actor to, to star in two films. Uh, Harrison Ford, he can either be Indiana Jones or he can be Han Solo. Uh, he can have two roles. And, and what I find myself doing is that even though I am only one man, I can be rather schizophrenic from time to time. And, and I can play more than one role, sometimes rather unintentionally. And sometimes I can be the, the dashing hero that my wife swoons over. <sighs> and sometimes I can be the most frustrating man in her life. Sometimes I can be the caretaker of my precious daughters. And sometimes I can be the one that they fear, bringing the rod of correction. And it is my character, both the character that, that God has placed in me and is developing in me that is good and, and holy and wholesome, but also my character that I received by birth, characteristics and, and traits that are within my flesh that are unholy and ungodly and, and that I'm always playing a mighty game of tug of war with and, and often losing. And, and it's these character traits which sometimes dominate the landscape of my day, especially if I'm hungry and impatient. I can become a rather intolerable guy. And that's hard for you to imagine, but it's very true. We're all this way. And in this passage, this intensely personal letter, I see these four men and these five cameos of their character that we could learn a great deal from. There's only 219 words in this book. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. I have lost far more important post-it notes than I have entire volumes. 
It's easy to, to maintain a hardback volume series or set of books. You can rest it on your shelf and there it sits collecting dust and, and it's there precisely where you left it. But it seems like little notes are sometimes so easy to, to misplace and to lose. And, and I think about that in relation to this letter. Here it is on my Bible, a generous margin at the top, a generous margin at the, at the bottom and on each side. And, and in its original um, writing and its original autograph by the pen of this apostle, it, it would have hardly taken up any space at all. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit of God took that little post-it note and, and preserved it long after the little sticky had worn off and decided that this inspired word would endure to every generation so that we could benefit from it. So here we are, seeking to benefit that which it teaches. I notice the first two words of this letter identify the apostle as the elder. In 2 John, he identifies himself the same way, the elder. The reason for that is here he is far beyond the age of that any of the other apostles aspired to or lived to. Now, John is, is up in years. He has very few years left, excuse me, in life. And, and now he's writing as, as this, this elder. And, and, and this is a book of wisdom. We're drawing not just by the wisdom of John, but by the wisdom of God. And I want to introduce you to these five different character traits from these four different men. The first character trait is this. I want to introduce you to the honorable man. Look with me in verse number, verse number three and four. The apostle John says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's referring to the man whom this letter is written to, the elder, verse number one, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. And here is this man, Gaius, that quite frankly, we would struggle to pinpoint um, who this man really is. It, it seems like he was an influential man among the churches in Asia, uh, but Gaius was an extremely common name. In fact, the scholar F.F. F. Bruce said that the name Gaius was one of only about a dozen names that, that Greeks would name their children after, or Romans would name their children. It, we find a number of different people that are named Gaius in the Bible. There's In Romans chapter number 16 and 1 Corinthians 1, there's Gaius of Corinth. And he was Paul's host when, when he was there at Corinth and he sent greetings to the church of Rome. He was also one of the very few that the apostle Paul baptized personally. But we can't guarantee that that man is this man. There was another Gaius. There was Gaius of Macedonia. You find him in Acts chapter number 19. And he is there with Paul during the, the riots in, in Ephesus. It seemed like everywhere that Paul went, he met someone named Gaius. And, and you'll see that in his letters as he makes salutations and greetings. Then there's another Gaius in Acts chapter number 20, again, an encounter with Paul. And this is Gaius of Derby. 
He is one of Paul's traveling companions when they, when they come all the way back to Jerusalem and, and there's a great stir when, when Paul goes to the temple there and, and Gaius uh, accompanies him on, on all of these, on, on this particular journey. Uh, the name Gaius means of the earth. It's like a man of, man of the earth. But we have no idea if, if any of those men are, are these men. No, if you're asking me what I think, no, I'm going to be careful here. This is a little Jaredology. But I, I personally believe that this could very well be um, Gaius of Derby, the one that came back with Paul to Jerusalem. And perhaps, just maybe, this is my speculation, perhaps that's where he first encountered the Apostle John. Purely speculation. Now here he is. And I want you to notice how he's described in this passage. Look with me, if you would, in verse number two, the Bible says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Gaius was the example of an honorable man. And our churches are in desperate need of men that are, are honorable, that their, their reputations are exemplary. They have a, a humble spirit, but most of all, that they have a, a soul that prospereth. I want you to draw very, um, look very closely, draw your attention to the end of verse number two, how, how Paul says that, that, that he wishes above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. It, it seems that this man Gaius had some health concerns. Perhaps he would even be on our prayer list if we were back in that time. You know, Pray for, for Gaius. He's, he's struggling with his health again. Perhaps it's his leg, his lungs, his heart, his mind. We, we have no idea, but he has some sort of infirmity, but I, I want you to notice how Paul says to pray, says that he's praying, that he is praying that he would prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. That's kind of saying two things at the same time. It's saying, number one, that his health is poor, but what it's also saying is that his soul is not. If I could make a, a contrast between the language of the Old Testament and the language of the, with the New Testament, in the, New Test, in the Old Testament, rather, it seems like every time a prosperity is spoken of, it is often in reference to uh, someone's um, influence, their social status, or their resources. In other words, um, Job was a man that, that was prosperous and blessed, right? Abraham was a man that prospered and was blessed. Uh, Joseph, one once he finally got through that whole slavery thing and, and, and was established there in Egypt, he was prosperous and blessed. However, whenever we come across these words, prosperity or prosper and blessed in the New Testament, the focus is entirely different. It is not a, a blessing or a prosperity of resources or status, but instead it is almost exclusively a prosperity or a blessing of spirit or of soul. We find this uh, perhaps most notably in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter number five. Whenever Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is not saying that they are wealthy. Blessed are the, are the meek. He is not saying that they have abundant resources. But what Jesus is saying 
is that they are right with God. That these characteristics of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, that these are characteristics that are formed in us by the Holy Spirit of God and are the most desirable to have. And if I were to just look down those Beatitudes, I would read attitudes and character traits like this. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they even which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Paul is saying to Gaius that his soul has prospered, I believe with all of my heart that he is not referring to some kind of financial wealth, but instead of a deep spiritual wealth. And this is where honorable comes from. It flows from the Holy Spirit of God. It was not the physical prosperity that was most important then, and it is not the physical prosperity of our life that is most important now. We need some men and women with the honorable trait of Gaius. They would be blessed and that they would turn that prosperity of soul into a Christian walk. And I have observed some people who seemed to walk the Christian walk that crumbled because it was all for show. But I have also seen some men and women with a prosperity of soul in their heart as they walk humbly with the Lord, that they, would, that they have set a tremendous example for all of us. That's why when we come through this to verse number three, we read, for I rejoice greatly uh, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. He was driven by the word of God, even as thou walkest in truth. And we need some honorable men and women in the church, uh, just like Gaius was, some men and women that would have more in common with Jesus Christ and his character than the character of this world. Men and women that would not be afraid to be meek because that's what God God has called us to be men and women that would hunger and thirst after righteousness because that's what it seems that the honorable men in that first century church were questing after. We see this first cameo of character. We see the honorable man. The next cameo of character that I see also flows from Gaius's life. We notice that Gaius was not just the honorable man, but he was the hospitable man. Look with me at verse number five. The Bible says, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sword, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing from the Gentiles. I, I like to kind of explain what my, my heart, my mind is thinking while I'm reading these verses. That Gaius was a man that showed great hospitality. 
that there are those that were passing through his area and the location which he ministered is, is not even mentioned because that is not the important thing in this letter. The important thing is that we're learning from the actions and the activities of this man. And one way that he's described is as, as a hospitable man, as, as brethren and strangers, in verse number five, pass by that he's always caring for their needs and also leading the church that, that he is overseeing to, to care for those needs as well. And, and I am reminded that the work, in the work of God, there will always be those in, in need and those that are passing by. And I notice that sometimes the people that are passing by could be defined as, as brethren. Uh, they are those that are saved by the grace of God and, and they are close to us and they, they, they know us and we know them. Uh, I think it's interesting, however, that there's a contrast here. Uh, those that he's caring for are described as brethren and as strangers. There's not a bigger contrast than that. If I were to be standing beside uh, someone and you were to come up to me and say, Pastor Jared, do you know this person? And I were to say, that's my brother. Well, that is an expression that I only share with one other human on earth in a physical sense. Benjamin Daniel Shoemate lives in Great Falls, Montana. He's the only physical brother that I have. No one else shares that. Oh, but I look at the very next word, the other type of person that Gaius was, was hospitable towards, not just the brethren, but and to strangers. Let's think about this again. If I was standing up here and someone was standing right beside me and you came up to me and you say, oh, Pastor Jared, who is this? And I just put my hands in my pocket and I just said, that's a stranger. <laughs> you just learned a lot about my relationship with that person. You learned, I don't know a thing about him. Chances are I've never seen him before today. I may never see him after today. I love the word stranger because at the root of it is the word strange. It's not the most polite thing to look at someone and say, you look strange to me. But that's essentially what's being said. There's no familiarity. There's a strangeness. There's, there's some distance between me and you. I, I'm really not sure what brought you here or, or where you're going. I, I don't know who your family is. I don't know what your background is. And sometimes we have the hardest time in church being hospitable to brethren Amen. And sometimes we have the hardest time in church being hospitable to strangers. There are some brethren that you don't like and you need to get over it. And there are some strangers you're not comfortable around and we need to get over it because God has called us to be hospitable to both. You see, the work of hospitality is a refreshing work. If you've never been traveling much, if you've never been on the road much, this may be a foreign concept to you, but it is sometimes difficult to spend many months and, and weeks away from home, going from town to town and place to place and always landing somewhere uh, where you are totally foreign and no one knows you. I tell you, I never forget the, the first time I flew to Africa, I, I landed in Uganda there in the Kampala airport, I grabbed my bags. I was supposed to meet a missionary, but he was 13 hours north by bus ride, and I didn't know anyone else in the whole country. I don't know if you knew this about Uganda, but their complexion is much darker than mine. Yeah, I was playing like this little light of mine 
Like I was shining. <laughs> I don't mean in a moral sense or a spiritual sense. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm just saying I stuck out like a sore thumb. I felt like a stranger because I was. I get on this little motorcycle called a Boda Boda. I don't know their language. I don't know anybody. I just know this address, this major bus station in the center of this city. And I tell this little driver that I hope he's not going to take me to some dark alley and mug me because it's the middle of the day. And I hope he gets me to where I go. He takes me to a place where there's a lot of buses. So I think, all right, I guess he took me to the right place. You realize how relieved I was when I saw all those buses? (laughs) I might dare say I was refreshed. All the anxieties that I had about the threats that might be surrounding me that I'm ignorant of were immediately gone when I realized that this man chose not to take advantage of me and instead actually deliver me on my journey. We're in a wonderful place where visitors seem to be coming in every week. Some of them we, we know from a baseball team or maybe your kids are friends together and they come and they visit, but there are others who, who slip in like complete strangers and they, they don't know anyone in here and we don't know them. And Gaius was aware of this problem. And that's why he had a reputation of taking care of not just brethren, but also strangers, those that stumbled in to the place of worship, caring for their needs. And, and, and this might seem like, like, a, like an idea, a concept, hospitality that we've got mastered here in the South. But I am telling you that, that, that sometimes churches can be the most difficult places to walk into if you don't know anyone. Because you're always wondering, is this pew safe to sit on? If anyone ever leaves here because they think they sat in the wrong pew, we're doing it wrong. If anyone walks out of this place because they found us cold and and unwanting or harsh and unkind, we have erred from the way that God has fashioned us to be. A church should be the most welcoming, warmest, forgiving, merciful, gracious place in all of the world. And yes, It might be that someone comes in and is very uncomfortable because of the truth that is preached to them. And if that is the case, then let it be so. Truth, the truth of God's word should make us all uncomfortable at times. But it should never be our personalities or our persons which make them uncomfortable. The church of God is a place where Jesus has said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy heavy laden and I will give you rest. There's another energizing work that I see that's being done by Gaius here as his hospitality shows forth. Sometimes we think that hospitality or even kindness to someone who's, who's visiting is, is really not all that, all that big a deal, but I'm telling you, it was a big deal to them. 
In fact, look at, at what John says about Gaius' hospitality here in, in verse number six. He says, which have borne witness of thy charity. You realize that how you care for others is a testimony to how much you love and care about God's people. He says, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Now notice this phrase, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sword, Thou shalt do well. He's referring to another type of people right here. A type of people that's almost traveling like a missionary or an evangelist. Uh, look at verse number 7. Because that for his name's sake they went forth. He's speaking of people that are going forth for the sake of the gospel. Going forth for the sake of Christ. And they have come into that place that Gaius is, is overseeing. And Gaius has shown great charity. A great hospitality. A great care for them. He has encouraged them. And look, he even gave them money. So I don't see any money there. See, that's your problem. You're, you're always trying to divide your money from the Word of God. <laughs> Being a little facetious, but look at verse number 8. Describing those that, that stumbled upon his place because they were on a great journey, perhaps a missionary journey, the way verse number 7 describes for his name's sake, these strangers or brethren are going forth. Notice what it says at the end of verse number seven, taking nothing of the Gentiles. I spent a great deal of time thinking about this, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Before I start reading commentaries or other things, I always like to just take a minute and think about what God's word is saying. Take nothing of the Gentiles. Why would you take nothing of the Gentiles? In, in fact, this is a big contradiction in my heart and mind because if you, you study your Bible a little bit, you, you find that the Apostle Paul goes in these churches that are established in Gentile areas. He takes up a collection from them for the Jews. You remember? He even delivers it to Jerusalem. So, so why is it that they're not collecting money of the Gentiles? I started to think about this, and I thought, well, maybe they're impoverished, or maybe they're, they're poor and, and just don't have the resources, but I don't think that's the case. This is what I believe in my heart. A couple other commentators confirmed that this was also their opinion, so if I'm off in left field, at least I got two or three with me. But it seems to be that as these particular missionaries that were coming through that areas where Gaius was serving, who were going forth for the namesake of Jesus Christ, because that for his namesake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, it seems that they're ministering specifically to these pagan areas. And by my estimation, they wanted these pagan people to know, we want nothing from you. We came to take nothing of you. But instead, we came to bring something to you. The pagan worship all throughout that area was, a, was an economy of sorts. It wasn't just a religion. 
Do you not remember what happened when the Apostle Paul came into what was the, the town? Was it Ephesus? And, and he comes into Ephesus and there's a temple of Diana and there's a, another, another man there that, that is profiting from selling idols and, and things offered to idols. And, and it's a big booming business and, and money is being changed everywhere. And, and here it is, not just a, a religion, but people are profiting from it and, and they're being influential because and now they have the people's money. And now, as they're going out, as these missionaries are going out, it is my estimation that as they go out, they're saying, I don't want them to think I came to take their money, so I'm not doing it. I will take nothing of the Gentiles. John's writing to Gaius. Remember, John's not there with him. This is all just stuff that, that he's hearing about Gaius' reputation. And he, and he says, he says, he says that they've been taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to their truth. In other words, receive offerings to give to them. We should do it because they're not going to receive it to the Gentiles. Can I just speak to you from my heart for a moment? This is why I'm very reluctant to let a single missionary, evangelist, preacher, or pastor, even if they're on vacation, travel through this place and not give them something. So, Pastor Jared, during the, the winter revival, we took up an offering each night and gave some to the Matthews and some to, to Brother Arthur. And if you look closely at the financial report at the end of the year, you'll notice we also added some to that from the general fund of the church. So why do you do that? This is why. This is why. It's not just polite. It's God-honoring. It furthers the cause. Look at what the Apostle John says about it. We therefore, verse number eight, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. He is saying that this activity of being a blessing to those strangers and those brethren, but especially those that are, are part of this ministry who are, are making sacrifices in other areas, we are going to make sure they don't make one sacrifice while they're here. Why? Because we're able to take care of them. And when we do, we are fellow helpers to the truth. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say you are fellow helpers to the missionary. It doesn't say you're fellow helpers to the evangelist. It doesn't say you're fellow helpers uh, to, to that person, to that woman, to that man. It says you're fellow helpers to the truth. What truth is he talking about? He's talking about the truth of the gospel that is being proclaimed. And I believe that God honors that. Not only does God honor that, but look at what happens as a result. If I go back to verse number seven, the result of Gaius' hospitality to them, look at this, verse number seven. Because that, for his name's sake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. Remember, they had nothing that was coming in by the people they're trying to minister to. But now look back one more verse, verse number six, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, this act of giving, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after godly sort, thou shalt do well. Can I just give a little um, Jared interpretation of that? 
When it says, whom if thou bring forward on their journey, what that's saying is, your act of charity, kindness, and love towards these people is, is bringing them forward. It's like putting a tow rope around them and saying, come on, you can keep doing this. I'm gonna help you. We're gonna move forward. We're gonna move forward. And, and I wonder if there would be more men in the ministry, more women on the mission field, more work being done globally if we had a better commitment to this type of hospitality. Third John doesn't mess around. If we pay close attention to what's on this divinely inspired and preserved post-it note, the cameos of character. And I see that in Gaius we have two character traits. We see the, the honorable man. and We see the hospitable man. And then just like, just like just about every, every church, and I, I am not picking on any one individual, and I don't even know who this would be. I'm glad I don't know who this would be. I'm sure maybe there's one here. But then you've got the exact opposite in this next character. Listen, knowing, know, knowing now what we know about Gaius, listen to what's said about this next fellow. In, in verse number nine, the Bible says, I, I wrote in the church... I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. It's like the exact opposite of Gaius. Now, in one way, this is really comforting to me. No church is perfect. No church is perfect. And, and, and no person is perfect. And this is the most convicting sort. Now, I'm, I'm going to go through this, and we're going to break this down for just a moment. But, but number three, if you're taking notes, if you want to write this down, Diotrephus, here is his characteristic. I wrote it this way. He is the humiliating man. The humiliating man. Now, I'll describe to you why I chose to put humiliating, but I could have put the hindering man. I could have put the heathenistic man. We could have called it the hateful man, the hellish man. Those are all good H's that would have gone, gone right there and, and kept the alliteration. But I tell you, his biggest problem is that he, the result of his work, is that he humiliates people. Do you know humiliated people? When they are humiliated because they find themselves in the presence of a holy God and recognize themselves as a sinner, that's one thing. But when they're humiliated by a condescending, pretentious, and proud look from some prideful, pharisaical church member, it is a terrible experience. It, it is a, it is a, a, it is abhorrent. It is wicked. And, and this is this man. And, and he says, I wrote in the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence, he is so proud, he is so full of himself that he won't praise anyone. You know he's not going to let John show up. John was an apostle. Who is this guy? And if John shows up, everybody's talking about John. And no one wants to hear from Diotrephes. And that's his problem. That's what it means when it says he loves to have the preeminence. But here is the problem. You know, I can be pretty harsh on Diotrephes, and I should be, but this is the convicting part, is that sometimes in me, I see Gaius, so hospitable and so honorable. Sometimes in me, 
I feel that influence of an internal diatrophies. Trying to the opposite. Trying to the opposite of give. Trying to the opposite of care for people. Trying to the opposite of, of humbling myself in order to esteem others better than myself. And then here is what he does. Verse number 10. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. You can find a... A, a man more diametrically opposed to what Gaius is. And here we have this humiliating man. We see his, his actions uh, trying to, to puff up himself, trying to push others out, trying to belittle those. I, I, I think this phrase is, is compelling to me when it says that he is pratting against us with malicious words. This word pratting is a, I love this word, Hapax legomena. It, it means that, that the, the Greek word that's underneath it is the only time it shows up in the whole New Testament. Pratting. And this is what it means. To overflow with talk. To overflow with talk. And here is Diotrephes. As soon as someone has something good to say, Diotrephes is going to drown that like a monsoon flood with an overflow of talk. Yeah, you know, well, John may have done that. And yeah, you know, he may have done this. And yeah, he, he walked with Jesus, John the beloved, but he thinks he's better than, than everybody else. And he was there with Jesus. And he thinks that makes him more special than we are. I'll tell you, we don't need some John here. And, and someone pipes up and says, well, you know, well, 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 didn't John really help us out the other? Yeah, he may have done, but he didn't do that. And it just overflow with talk, overflow with talk. And every time uh, someone's saying something good about what God's doing, or, or something good about what someone has done that the Lord has already brought in so far, it seems like there's always a diatrophies there to squash it, there to discourage it, there to overflow it with their fancy words, their condescending language, and he decides that, that he's not going to try to help anyone that might be a threat to him. And this is always a problem whenever we think that the church is here to serve us instead of knowing that we are here to serve the church, we've got a problem. Now, should the church serve you sometimes? Yes, absolutely. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. But this should be our mindset that we are always here to serve someone else. I refer to Sunday night as we looked at the giftedness that God has given. It is always, gifts are always for the edification of the body. When I say serve the church, I'm not talking about me. I am not the church. I am one member who has one office in this church. And there are a lot more members than me. And there are a lot more work being done than I can do. And when we come into the church, we should realize that this church is not here to serve us. We are here to serve those that are here. And Diotrephes had it the opposite way. He wanted to have the preeminence. 
He wanted to have the church serving him. He wanted every program to facilitate his needs. He wanted every service to be all about him. He wanted to be the one on the platform. He wanted to be the one making the decisions. He wanted to be the one in control. He didn't want John coming around. He wanted to do it all himself. And if anyone had to say anything different than what he wanted, the Bible says that he cast them out of the church in verse number 10. That is a problem. That is a problem. Whenever we are so passionate about how we think things should be that we're willing to say, you need to get out because you don't want it the way that I want it. And not to be confused here. Yes, the church should always be within the boundaries of what Scripture says it to be, but Scripture stands alone, and it doesn't always need us as the enforcers. He doesn't receive the brethren. He always finds some pretentious excuse, excuse to cast them out, forbids others from helping. And his attitude is absolutely condemned. Look what's said. Because of his pride, he's so full of himself that he's, he's doing the exact opposite of what God desires his church to be doing. And, and the Apostle John, after describing the work of Diotrephes in verse number 9 and 10, he says in, in verse number 11, Beloved, follow not that which is evil. You know, I, I, I love John's heart here. As he, he reaches out to Gaius and just reminds him, hey, Diotrephes might be against you too, but I'm for you. He says, he calls him beloved. You know, it's a good idea every now and then when somebody gets beat up by somebody in the church or difficult things happen. It's a good idea every now and then just to remind that person, hey, we love you. We love you. Don't worry. Not, not every person is like that person. Not every church is like that church. Hey, not every day is, is like that day. Hey, we love you. We love you. And then John gives some instruction. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil is, is not seen God. Whenever you see someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ and a, and a, and a Christian, but does not manifest any of, of the, the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't manifest any of the, uh, the, the beatitudes in their life, I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't surround yourself with that garbage. And you might say, well, well, man, they, they, they say some really profound things here and there. Well, that might be so, but don't get sucked in because if they don't have the Spirit of Christ enough to care for others more than they care for themselves, then I would be highly concerned that everything is not just to elevate themselves. Whenever you want to elevate yourself, you're a degrading truth. You're a degrading God. You're a degrading the church. You're are degrading God's people, and that's not the kind of person you want to read after, study after, follow after, listen to, or be around. And if I ever become that man, kick me out. Man, that felt weird to say. It's poison. It's poison. Because sometimes we'll get around men that are just 
like this. But they're really good at this, and really great at that. And we get sucked in by those things they're really good at or really great at. But then when we observe their life and their spirit and their testimony, and it doesn't add up or line up with the spirit of Christ, boy, we got to be careful. Last time I checked, these things are spiritually discerned. And if there's something off in our union with the spirit, there's going to be something off with our understanding of the word. He was a humiliating man. During his life, he humiliated others. And now wherever he is, heaven or hell, his testimony is a humiliation to his name. Don't ever name your kid Diotrephes. Oh man, it's 833. There's two other traits that I was hoping to point out. We come to Demetrius and he's a helpful man. I believe that he was the one that actually delivered this letter to Gaius. We see him in verse number 12. He had a good report of all men. And I'll just say this about him and then I'll move on. If, if you want to be a help, don't just be a help to those that are closest to you. You know, one of the qualifications for a, for a pastor, a bishop, given in 1 Timothy, is to have a good report of them which are without if we want to be a help, we've got to have a good report. And we, we quote that verse all the time. Well, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Did you know you cannot choose your name? You've got to earn it. You can't just wake up one morning and say, I choose to have a good name. No, you've got to prove it in front of people. And if you're going to be a helpful man, you're going to need that name. And then lastly, the heartfelt man. And this is John. And this is where we all need to be. A man that's willing to write. And say things like this. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. A man that would, would say something thing like, like this. Oh, I had many things to write, but, but I'll, I'll not think and pen right unto thee. But I trust I shall come and, and see thee and I'll speak to thee face to face. We need to be the kind of man that will say, peace be to thee. I'm not your enemy I'm your friend. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. And, and you see that, that loving companionship of the Apostle John. You see, there's some character traits in this book that we need to be more faithful with. 